we're going to be in the Gospel of John. What I have been doing is moving through the Gospel uh, on our devotionals. So if you've been tracking with me at 10 a.m. through the week, and most of the time I'm hitting the mark, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, there have been some little hops here and there. We try to post you on that. But this would be normally my Monday teaching. So I'll have something for you tomorrow, and probably it's going to be either concluding this or chapter 8. So really felt impressed this would be a great word for us today. Chapter 7, the Gospel of John. Let's see what the Lord would have us understand about him being encouraged as well. You can see that in the title, it kind of outlines what Jesus has been experiencing thus far. The title says, Brothers, Seekers, Leaders, But Where Are the Believers? Now that's a note that you know I poetically attach to it, kind of as a, a reminder in, in a limerick kind of fashion. Jesus is in the Gospel of John being given a priority in that writing as the Son of God, God himself, the very person that was promised by God the Father to the Jews, and in a way and manner by lineage and promise and prophecy could not have been missed seemingly. So, When I try to ask myself, what would Jesus have been feeling when every way he turns, his feelings are not even a consideration? The way that he is spoken to, the way that he is disrespected, the way that he is sought for intentions that are not in and of themselves selfless, but selfish. The lives that he's touched, the healings that are miracles that he has performed, he's God. God in such a way that there would be evidence that suggests he's not even imposing himself by looks. I would have dialed myself in a little bit differently if I had been God and wanted to make an appearance as God as a human being. I would have done things a little different for me to make things a little more obvious for people. But that is not the way that the Lord worked. Nor is it today the way that the Lord works. Because what we understand is that God is pleased with faith. And faith is engaged in a belief that what he has said, he will perform. When God speaks to us, we say in agreement, yes, Lord. Belief in the exercise of Abraham's faith is what made him a father of faith. And it is ultimately what, as the scriptures reveal all the way back in Genesis, is all it took 
on that given moment in which the voice of the Lord had been heard by him and he left everything behind and he stepped in to a whole new world of living. Jesus steps into the world that he created and he did so, as you understand historically, through human means. He was birthed in lineage appropriate to the prophecy having been spoken and raised in humble means. It indicates that as we move into this chapter that not only did he have a mother and what we would call today a stepdad, not his father, his father is our Heavenly Father. But there were siblings that followed after he was born. Doesn't tell us, per se, the span. We can kind of calculate. There's a span of 13 years between my eldest brother and myself, and then some other brothers packed in. Well, I'm actually two for the price of one with my twin. But Don, who's just about nine years my senior, they're the upper end of the baby boomers, and I'm the lower end. And then Jim was in the middle. And so I kind of know what it's like to have a spread, and, and, and there are impressions that I have of my older brothers that are very significant. We were able to laugh together yesterday, as many of you know. Uh, my middle brother, Jim, is with the Lord. So I attended his funeral and presided over it. And the reason that that's only just a slight dovetail right now is because Jesus is proclaiming precisely what he has come to do, which is to seek and save the lost and to heal the infirmed and to restore lives that are ruined and to take away the plague of the fear and the reality of death. I was able to stand with my family and friends and reassure them historically of the word of truth. And for those who were listening, they had to do so in faith. I was able to say confidently in faith, that Jim is with the Lord. And one of the promptings was, as I was standing next to my sister-in-law, she said, Jim was a great guy. And I put my arm around her and I said, he is a great guy. He is a great guy. Jesus is a great guy. In faith, we know who he is, and we ask ourselves, how could they have missed it that we're so close to him? Because right off this teaching are his brothers. And like I said, there's a spread between my eldest and myself. But I clearly remember the episodes in my life in which he was a great older brother. Still is. But I remember him. And I did not refute his authority over me when he came home. 
I kept my eyes on him, away from home, my second eldest brother as well. They were just kind of heroic to me. And so it dumbfounds me. How in the world could these guys have missed it? But I will say, and you know that we can jump to the end on this, though they missed it initially, they got it, essentially, and became authors, at least two of them, in the New Testament, the book of James, the book of Jude, written by the brothers who among those mentioned here, somewhat anonymously, they found him because he revealed himself. Let's take a look at this text, get into the meat of it. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. So one of the things that we know about God is he can do everything, anything, and he certainly would have power to subdue any who would try to take him. We never see evidence of that. We see Jesus moving in a way that we might say is stealth, calculated. It has much of the common sense stuff that you and I have to use down here. And by the way, that's probably an important insight that as we see Jesus exercise in his humanity, he shows us that we can too in our divinity. The substitution in what he was from heaven to who he is revealing himself on earth is the same that he would say is your divine nature now to what his divine nature is presently. We get a chance to say, Lord, as you walked, I will walk. As you faced confrontation, I will face confrontation. As you were disrespected, I will permit that to be what I as well will receive. Where you had no doubt of who you were, I will have no doubt as to who I am in you. Fearless you were, Lord, I desire to be walking without fear. Fear is so crippling, isn't it? Okay, so I'll give you an example. So the funeral was yesterday. It was going to be at 11 o'clock. I got up very early, about 4. But I made a trek on my brother's property. And it was to just go out and have morning devotions. There was a beautiful moon. Some of you may have seen it. A particular star or planet. I think it was Mars. But at any rate, everything was up there. It was just beautiful, gorgeous. And so I'm, it's not familiar property to me, but trees and terrain, and I got it, and I have an idea of where I'm going. And so I moved to actually the area where the trees split and the moon shining down, and it just seems like, oh, this is wonderful. This is good. And then I sat on a line of stumps that my brother had. He's military, so if there's stumps, he'll put them in order. And I chose a stump that was good for my rump, and I just sat down and, and began talking to the Lord. Well, there's also wild turkeys all over the property. And so they're gobbling at me. And do you know they, they can fly up to the top of a tree? 
I never knew that. I'm going, what are you guys doing? It's not Thanksgiving yet. How did you even get up there? But they're kind of mocking me, and I deserved it probably for what I thought of them. But as I'm sitting there, I didn't hear something kind of in the forest. It's the rustling of, of brush. And, and I think I heard kind of the, a, an animal that was assigned to be food for another animal. And it was just one of those quick little, oh, Lord, am I in cougar country, bear country? And my devotions were completely blown by what? Fear. I mean, 30 years ago, I faced off with coyotes and wild stallions. I take a simple walk, sit on a stump, talking to God, and the rustling of the trees and the squawking of an animal no longer alive today. And I go, yeah, I'm good, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. We're good. We're good. And it's fear. It's fear. And I don't get it. But I also left without guilt. I just hopped in my van, <laughs> opened my Bibles, and I used my interior light rather than moonlight. The Lord understands. But not to deviate much, but simply to say, our God was fearless and faithful and having to deal with those who didn't understand him and didn't want to understand him. They wanted stuff from him, but they didn't want the substance of who he was as God. And that is not what I want to be. I want the substance of who he is as God. By the way, when we take communion, he would say, you are taking the substance of who I am as God. My body broken for you. My blood shed for you. Just wanted to interject that. But this is what kind of God he was as a human being who walked in such a way that perhaps we would even pass him on a walking lane, coming from a place or even passing him up on a roadway, going to the same place. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. That's the leadership. His brothers, therefore, said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Notice this, that your disciples, these are his brothers. Who are you guys? Why aren't you the first to join this movement of the Spirit of walking in faith with your elder brother who would have done you no harm, who probably would be the best example of an older brother anybody could have? What is it about him that you can't follow before he even chose those whom he did? I mean, it's just a question I have. You know that Obviously, those who were selected as disciples initially, he prayed over and through. But I would have no doubt that had these guys got Jesus earlier, man, what things they could have written about him later. But then I was reminded yesterday at a service that actually brought somebody great comfort 
I didn't recognize Jesus in a time in my early youth in the manner that I should have from my brother who clearly was a representative of the Lord. Jesus freak way before I was, and I shared that. And one person that is a family friend of his and had known Jim in the very early years of orthodontia, actually periodontia, said, I never knew that about Jim. I always sensed something deep in him, but I never knew that about Jim and his passion for Jesus. So these brothers are not fully in what you would call the believer's category. Yet right now they're saying to him in their hearts, hey, make yourself, make yourself known. That's what you need to do. We know what people are saying about you. We've lived with you. Do something to promote yourself. His brothers therefore said concerning to him, depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. So they had evidence of the works that he had done and yet they did not believe. And that tells me something as well concerning Jesus. Works of the Lord will not impress you regarding the Lord. You must press into the Lord to be able to understand the works of the Lord. Seeing is not believing, believing is seeing. And this is what they tell us. They could not believe because they were always looking to see something new, something just a little more extraordinary, something beyond perhaps the excuse or the analysis. I want to also tell you something about the kind of man that Jesus was. It's, it's subtle, but if you investigate, man, he was, he was an athlete in the sense of putting out what we would call a lot of energy to get from place to place. And I just marvel at this. From where he would be at right now in the Galilean region in order to make it to the feast that his brothers are saying he needs to start promoting himself. Come on, let's get the campaign going. It would be like you and I from Brookings to walk all the way to Gold Hill. So that's just the community beyond Rogue River and just before Medford, about 114 miles, give or take. So we can do it in about two and a half hours. And by car today, if you launched from the sea and headed into or up to Jerusalem, that's about what we would drive to get into the city. For Jesus, averaging four miles per hour, it's about a 17-hour 17 17 walk. That's extraordinary. Now, obviously, others are doing it as well, but it kind of tells you their stamina, and it also kind of tells you their, their passion to do a godly pilgrimage. 
And we have people today that do have a passion to do a godly pilgrimage, but are they missing God on the walk? There's one thing to be a part of a procession that is spiritual and highly important, but are they missing God on their walk? Are they walking with God? Or is it just a thing to do to be acknowledged as godly? In our days today, it's one of our predicaments because of culture, because of politics. The church more than ever needs to be making walks and fearless walks. And I need to work on that as I believe was my lesson yesterday. Really? A couple of turkeys mock you and the rustling of a bush? You've walked much farther, Rich. You've been in more perilous times. Only to find out as the Lord kind of sealed that, that my sister-in-law had taken a walk before me about a mile or so. And I'm going, oh, a mile through the forest area, the dark forest. I'm going, you pansy, Rich. No one does anything in secret for while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. But see, that's what I'm saying is that Jesus was not endeavoring to articulate through his presence or by keeping a schedule that was imposed upon by what other people thought he needed to do to prove or validate who he was as God. That was not his intent. Every single person could have missed him as a human being because he came in such a way and behaved in such a way that we would not take much notice of him unless he did something very noticeable, which on several occasions he has. But the beneficiary, the beneficiary of those particular miracles were those that came in. And it didn't seal them either, though. As the title moves on this, but where are the believers? If one of those incidences I had been present at, in my heart, I believe there'd be no question or doubt in my mind that I believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And I would be asking him, Lord, may I follow you? And so Jesus, in hearing them trying to promote him, we see that verse 5 tells us, for even his brothers did not believe in him, the ones closest to him, the ones that would have had an historic domestic understanding of him, a perfect brother. And they did not believe. He's not going to give up on them, but it appears that they gave up on him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. That's a good phrase. See, the Lord is coming. He's returning for us. We're saying, where are you, Lord? And he says, uh, your time is always ready. What are you going to do with the time that remains? It's ready right now. 
as a nation, what are we going to do with our time? It's ready right now. We're saying, come and get us out of this. And Jesus probably is saying, I put you there. And it's for a purpose. And my purpose has not yet been satisfied through your life. So your time is ready. My time is coming. And when I come, I will come for you. And the graves tell me that. The graves tell me that of those in that graveyard that I've now attended over the past 25 years, four times for my family members, that he's coming and we are going. They already went. But those graves will speak ultimately about the readiness that all of us as well need to have. Those graves will be opened. In the next couple of chapters, we'll see that he used an example of that. And yet even for some who will be attending the opening of a grave for a man whom Jesus loved, his sisters, Mary and Martha, the coming forth of Lazarus from the grave by the command of Jesus would not be sufficient to convince them to be believers. You want to talk about groaning, and he does in two occasions in that moment. We're all groaning as we now question life and spirituality, the vitality of the church, the state of our country and government. We're in a time in which there is the provocation of the soul to either give up on God or to say, I'm giving up on everything but God. God's the only thing right now that I know I can trust in and I haven't yet up to this point, but my time is now. And this is a challenge, I believe, for us as a nation. My time is now. And I want to do even better with the time that I spend. Your time is always ready. Anytime you're ready, your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. So if you want to be hated, that's all you have to do. Testify that the works of the world is evil and you'll be a hated man. You want to avoid conflict? Don't tell the world what it is. Tell the world what it wants to hear. Oh, you're so good. Mm, that's so understanding. Whatever it may be that the world wants to hear, that you're tolerant of its abhorrent behavior, you're tolerant of opinions that it has about God or impressions that it wants to make with others concerning whom God is then you'll be a friend of the world. But if you tell the world the truth, then Jesus, who experienced the hatred of it, will say, welcome to my world. And yet that did not deter him. I don't know if you've ever been hated or sensed that you've been hated. It's a terrible feeling though, isn't it? It's a, just a terrible feeling. And to me, it would be enough to discourage me from wanting to go one step further for that person that hated me. That's precisely what Jesus did. A Christ-rejecting world 
and one who had been prophesied clearly in Isaiah 700 years before, and the leaders would have been able to validate that, as well as scholars who said Messiah was going to come and be born in Bethlehem, and he was. Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. And the reason he says that concerning his brothers is that his brothers did not yet hate the world. They did not cleave to their brother, whom in fact is their Lord and who is the Savior of the world. So he says, you go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And the reason that Jesus is moving practically is because he already knows there's a wanted poster out, tacked on, if you would, to the stone walls. He's already got a bounty on his head. And this doesn't tell us that he's afraid of that because he already knows the way that that has to be done. He turns himself in. And he turns himself in because that's the Father's will that he do so. But he's realizing that in this as well, there are those that he is going to protect. And that's why he's separating himself consciously from both his brothers and very likely his disciples right now, that they might not be harmed in the intent of those who are maliciously hunting him down to kill him. See, he was always aware of the conspiracies, either to take him by force to make him king, which is what they wanted for change, or to take him to execution because they could not stand him. And I would not know what that is like to be on both fronts, having the challenge where people by force are going to want to do something with me that is not my time, not my place, not my position. Verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast. Some people make a point saying that, well, wasn't that a lie? He said, my time is not yet. He was delaying. And this is important to note. God is able to have delays in your life and in my life as he sends us forward that are very highly telling to us. It's an exercise of faith. And I'm wondering if maybe he separates himself from them because in fact he knows that from the time they walk, all he will hear in his ears is, okay, so this is what we got lined up for you. Got a couple of meetings here. Got a couple of uh, miracle moments for you there. This is going to be great, Jesus. We'll see you roll up your sleeves and do your stuff. Everything that we are evaluating about you, we, we now are going to roll out the campaign. My time is not for this purpose. He was always in reservation concerning how there would be revelation. Reservation concerning his revelation, and it is for the purpose of seating in the hearts of men and women and children of his native land 
whom he is. And it would not be by the trends that men and people set for him. The Jews, as it says in verse 11, seek or sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. And others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. Torn between two opinions. And obviously we know which opinion we believe in. He's good, and not only is he good, he's God. And there's no deception in him whatsoever. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. This is what fear does. I can have my morning devotions and be afraid of what's rustling in the bushes. That's of little consequence. But if I have fear of standing up for the Lord in the manner by which my faith has been expressed to him, I have problems. And the reason that I have problems is the Lord would be able to challenge me that if I cannot confess him before men, he will not be able to confess me before his father. That is actually the bedrock of our faith. We can say we're Christians. We can hold our Bibles as Christians. We can go to prayer meetings. But if we, by fear, are not able to confess him before men, the problem is, is that our faith certainly is as imposturing as putting on a costume. And I can't do that. And yes, for some, and perhaps for many here, it will mean you will be challenged and you may very much find yourself even in peril, in jeopardy. But they were unwilling, and it says, because of fear. So when you're hearing people in leadership, in government, and they're fearless in speaking about the Lord, you can have your heart warmed that they're doing the right thing, but you can also stand and observe how they will be hated for what it is they've borne testimony of. We had one of the most overt inaugurations, in my opinion, in history of our president, because everyone that pretty much took the stage were sound believers, and they prayed authentically, sincerely in Jesus' name, and he was mocked. And it never stopped, did it? Never stopped. But I bet you, historically, there was probably one of the most overt presidential inaugurations in the history of the United States, in which, unashamedly, prayer was offered to God, and, man, I hope that the Lord continues to bring up those who, with Bible and with a heart and with a strong confidence in the Lord, use their time of influence to proclaim him as Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and a nation that sins that needs to say, we must turn our eyes to the Lord. And we must change the things 
that our country has drifted from with regard to God. And if I must put my check there, but it aligns with the scriptures here that I have read, that I believe in, then that's what I will do. My life will agree with scripture. I will come into an agreement with God in truth. And so with this contention that we see and the fear that has been voiced, it says, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. He's going to the place where his heart has always been drawn to, his father's house. And what does he do? He teaches. Really fundamental. That's why on Sundays we teach, on Thursdays we teach, throughout the week we teach. We teach as much as we can, as thorough as we can, and we do so because that was the heart of Jesus. He was a teacher. We teach our families. We teach our kids. We give them insights of what the scriptures tell us they need to have their sights on so that one day when the earth opens up to friends or family, they are able to say, and thus the heavens are open as well. Not closed, but open. As the earth takes in whom I love, I know that with certainty they are with who loves them, Jesus. And so Jesus says with regard to this teaching as the Jews marvel, saying, how, did this, how does this man know letters, having never studied? Boy, talk about ignorance, not the Lord, these guys. The Gospel of John tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is God. Languages came from him. All the hidden gems of biblical truth are found in the word of God. Fascinating. But Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself speaks his own glory, but he who seeks, excuse me, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Verse 19, he brings them back to the history. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? He's teaching a sincere audience, but there are those who are insincere who are actually just taking notes. They want evidence to be able to indict him, and he knows it, and he challenges them on it, and he brings them back to Moses, whom they revere. And in this, he says, you're not even keeping the law with regard to Moses. The people answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? One of the things that we see in culture today is that when they're confronted with truth, they reciprocate and have their own version, usually in slander. 
as opposed to receiving. Jesus identifies the contrast with right now what they do not do and what they're challenging him and what he has done. I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? And this is their point. The man at the waters of Bethesda, 38 years in his affliction, the Lord came and touched him and healed him. And healed him on what day? The Sabbath. The word is saying that because the child, male child, is to be circumcised on the eighth day, you'll break the Sabbath, which isn't to be broken for his sake, to keep the law. I, in healing a man, on the very Sabbath that you would break the law in circumcising a baby, and you indict me? Why? Aren't they both required good works? And who is the one that could do it? For the circumcision, they are doing it on behalf of God according to the law of Moses. But Jesus himself, on behalf of God, is doing it for the infirmed. Both good works, but one, the better work, freeing someone on the Sabbath from a malady that he is bound up in. And the Lord is saying, I do things that are contrary to the laws because I am the one who satisfies everything with regard to the law. I can do it because I satisfy everything with regard to the law. Paul would write in Ephesians that because of the law, it has an inciting tug on people but he would declare that all things are lawful to me, though all things are not expedient. Meaning, Paul was able to exercise what things in liberty he enjoyed and could do, and also dismiss those things which were not expedient to do, much like Jesus. This is expedient and necessary according to the law of the Spirit and love that I healed this person. Expedient and necessary though in violation, which they were on the eighth day, but on a Sabbath, you do. You do this to honor God, according to the law of Moses. I did this to honor my Father, according to the doctrine of truth. I embody the fullness of the law, and I perfectly dispatch it in harmony with my Father, whom you, obviously, are looking to and yet not acknowledging me in. One work, and you're ready to kill me for it, one work, and you marvel at it. But my goodness, there have been other works that he's done. Imagine feeding 5,000, and actually more than that. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment.
that ought to be probably a campaign motto. Because man, do we judge by appearance. But the Lord says the key to it is according to righteous judgment. What lines up with scripture? What is it about a man and woman that we are able to say finds agreement with truth and God's word and the spirit of God? Brothers, they didn't believe. Jesus sends them forward. Seekers. They sure enjoyed that fish and bread dinner, and they wanted some more of it, but not necessarily Jesus with it. Leaders, they're trying to find a way to stop the Son of God from proclaiming his oneness with the Father. We as of right now in Scripture have not found the evidence as he finds himself in the challenge of literally a scholarly work arguing his case. But are there any believers are there any believers? And today, we need to be mindful as well that even within the church and even, sadly, our nation, which has a wonderful motto, one nation under God, one nation under God. But sadly, are we believers in what it means? Or is there a God that now has replaced the one true God. And so in really the very short days that remain to be able to say for God, may he use me. And in prayer, may I avail myself to participate in appealing to God for a stay, literally of a judgment that very likely can be said has come back upon us as a nation. The backslider will be corrected by his backsliding. A nation that backslides will be corrected by its backsliding. It's not God's backhand. His hand is reaching down for us and wanting to easily turn us. So we have a voice. We need to use it. We have a voice. We need to use it. Closing, I, I want to say, illustrating two examples that are real-life contemporary examples. The voice of the unborn, you've heard me say that. It's not a political statement, it's a righteous statement. But some of you may be aware that a very special family that was linked with this work and moved into the valley, they lost their baby in delivery just a couple of days ago. Just in delivery two healthy baby boys and a third one that the Lord just took into heaven. So the Lord did take him. And that was the Ateros. Standing next to my niece and her husband, it was two years ago in which their baby 
went to be with the Lord after six hours with mom and dad. It was a birth defect. There was, there was no head, that, skull that was formed. But the little baby boy got a little beanie, got to nurse, and then was taken into heaven. Okay, those are, those are God-ordained elections. But there are babies that are being taken egregiously and unrighteously from the womb. And our nation has allowed it to be sanctioned. That needs to be changed. That needs to be changed. So hopefully that's not an argument, but even if it was by anybody that would impose it, I would probably do what Jesus did in the next couple of chapters, just groan and groan. So there is reason to be praying that those children are not snatched and that they are not simply considered as expendable because they're not. I will say, though, that for that statistic, they are with the Lord. You don't have to question where they're at, but that's not the way the Lord wanted to receive them. So be in prayer with, again, these families that are hurting, but in particular in that prenatal and delivery, there, there are hurting moms right now. But I will tell you also on the other side of this, Bethany, whom I was sharing about their baby, the Lord gave them 18 months later a beautiful baby girl named Charlotte. And that was awesome. Sawyer went to be with the Lord. Charlotte, from the Lord, is who they care for now. 